Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the media's biggest failing of the Trump era, the politics of poppies, and the battle for freedom in a small Ontario town. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. We are on the third day of the American election, actually the fourth day of the American election, really, if you consider it. Started on Tuesday and we are now on Friday, November 6th. But nevertheless, thank you very much for tuning into the program today. This is a bit of a tricky one because I, generally speaking, try to avoid talking about things that are likely to become dated in the couple of hours between when we record and, and when the show comes out. But in this case, it's kind of inevitable, and I can't you know, counteract that by not talking about the U.S. election. Suffice it to say, this isn't going to be about the horse race of, oh, you know, this county in Arizona or that county in Georgia. But I want to talk about the broader themes of this election and what we do, in fact, know, which is that the media lost. The never-Trumpers lost, the hysteria from the left, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hysteria against Trump lost. Even if it ends up where Donald Trump has lost this election, the fact that it took four days to get to that point is exactly the point that I'm trying to make here, that we cannot say that there was this grand rebuke of Trump or the Trump presidency or Trumpism when this was, in a lot of cases, just something that came down to a coin toss. And if you take the coronavirus pandemic out of the equation, I think this is a pretty decisive Donald Trump win. However, let's talk about why I say the media lost, if you haven't already been able to figure it out. For the last four years, actually the last five years, if we start it from when he was just candidate Trump, the media has tried to throw absolutely everything at him. Donald Trump, you may remember, was under investigation by the Obama White House before he even took office. And ever since he was in office, it was Russia investigation, Russia investigation, Russia investigation. Then it was uh, the next uh, stage of that. Then it was impeachment. And since the impeachment, it's been the coronavirus pandemic. So there's never actually been a, a period where the left has accepted that Donald Trump won. There hasn't been that point. So Donald Trump has been up against tremendous resistance through the entirety of his presidency, and the election is no exception. So when you have hundreds of millions of dollars in Senate races, billions of dollars in overall campaign expenses that are against you, and you still come out almost at an even point with your competitor, that's a pretty successful result. So why did the polls not reflect that? Why did the polls get it so wrong? Well, the same reason they did in 2016. And they still haven't understood why it is that they lost the first time around. They still haven't understood why it is that they didn't get it right four years ago. And this is why I want to talk about the Trump voter. 
And when I say the Trump voter, I'm talking about the type of person that's not reflected by the polls, the type of person who voted for Donald Trump and didn't tell anyone about it, and the type of person that was nevertheless there, they existed, even though polls were showing at some point Donald Trump being up like 15 or uh, down by like 15 points or whatever. I think it was the, the Quinnipiac poll that had said, you know, Biden was going to win pretty much every state in the union or something like that, like uh, Ronald Reagan's 1984 win, uh, where Walter Mondale had just one state, and that was the state of Minnesota. So the the Trump voter, and I realize it's not a, a monolithic demographic, but there's someone that has been for the last four years stigmatized, tremendously stigmatized to such a point where they are not likely to want to tell someone who's calling them up as a pollster, yeah, I'm voting for Donald Trump. They're not likely to say, yeah, you know, I am. If uh, someone calls them up and says, okay, who are you voting for in the upcoming election? Because they've been told by the media that anyone who votes for Trump is a racist, a bigot, a thisophobe, a thatophobe, and they are not going to want to embrace that. Now, some people will. Some pre people will, will be diehards or renegades or just contrarians and say, yeah, I'm voting for Trump, whatever. But the media has tried for four years to project its characteristics that it sees in Trump onto Trump's voters. And that has been not just one of the most unfair mischaracterizations of half of the United States, but also a fundamentally inaccurate one. And what I mean by that is that even if, even if you could accept the media at face value that Trump is everything they've called him, that does not mean that you can extend that to every one of his voters. And that's something that the media got very wrong. And it was a miscalculation. And it's part of why trust in media, if you look at a number of surveys, is at an all-time low. Because people are tired of being maligned by this organization, this institution that's supposed to be the bastion of truth, the protectors of democracy, and all of these other uh, honorifics uh, that the media bestows upon themselves. So when the media is trying to say, okay, how can anyone, and when, by, by the way, when I talk about the media, there's a lot that goes into that. There's the pundit industrial complex, the, uh, you know, 97 person panels on CNN. There's even what news anchors say. Uh, just take a look. Th this is how, uh, this is how Jim Acosta, who is supposedly a news reporter, he's not a commentator, an analyst, a columnist, a news reporter spoke of Trump's uh, presser, his press conference on Thursday, before the press conference even took place. This is what Jim Acosta said. There probably ought to be a Surgeon General warning. What you're about to hear from the President of the United States may not be in line with the facts, may be hazardous to your democracy may be hazardous to the counting of the votes. I suspect that, you know, when the president comes out here, we're going to see a fair uh, amount of bending of the truth. And I, I just think we just all have to be prepared for that. I, you know, we can tiptoe you know, through the tulips and, and dance around the truth here, Anderson, or we can just say what we've, what we've seen over the last four years. This president will lie and lie and lie when it suits his purposes. Um, uh, and I, I suspect we're going to be seeing more of that when he comes out here. Okay, so there is no objectivity there. There's no ambiguity. There's no doubt. That is what they think. And I, I think we can extrapolate from what Jim Acosta said a, a general sense of how the mainstream media has viewed Trump. And look, I mean, Trump has taken aim at the media. The media takes aim at Trump. You may say that is the, the balancing of the universe in effect. But it's that dynamic that has extended between the way the media also 
engages with Trump voters. I, I won't play the clip, but I, I believe I played it a few months ago when Rick Wilson, who's this, you know, never Trumper, former Republican, and Don Lemon were just, you know, yucking it up on TV, laughing at, you know, these rednecks, Trump, uh, these redneck Trump supporters that don't even know where Ukraine is and couldn't point to it on a map and, and stuff like that. So this stuff breeds through, and it's the same as when Hillary Clinton called them all deplorables, when I think it was former uh, health minister in Alberta, Sarah Hoffman, referred to people in uh, the conservative base there as sewer rats. When you start writing off entire chunks of the electorate, marginalizing them to say that they do not belong in polite society, they do not belong in civil society, you're going to have a revolt of sorts on your hands. And I don't mean a, a violent, bloody coup. I, I just mean a revolt in the sense of people turning around and saying, well, I'm not going to listen to you. And that's why now, for example, when you've had for the last couple of days the media saying, okay, yeah, you know, Trump won, uh, Trump laws this state, Biden won this state, yeah, Trump's, Trump's out. Uh, that's why people are like, well, hang on, you guys haven't exactly been the most credible for the last four years. Why am I going to start paying attention to you now? And once you give people a reason to distrust institutions, it's very difficult for them to trust any institutions, which is why right now no one trusts ballot counting, which is why no one trusts the mail, which is why no one trusts the media, which is why no one trusts Trump or no one trusts Biden. It's why right now trust in everything is shattered and people cannot just have this as a seamless election the way that most elections have been, generally speaking. I know there are a few hitches there, 2000 being one of them. So when you have this, you are at a, a point where there is a cultural divide that is greater than the political divide, but is revealed in the political divide. And that's not going to go away. If Biden is declared the winner and the court challenges are exhausted and Biden still is sworn in on Janu in January, then there is not going to be this reckoning that is easily going to unite the country, heal the land, uh, bring the oceans back into alignment with the world, with the world, and all that stuff. Like it's just it's not going to happen. And in the same way, if Donald Trump emerges and is reelected and is resworn in in January, there is not going to be this recognition of, okay, now we realize he's our president. No, this is not going to happen. And, and that divide needs to be bridged. And I'm not going to do this whole kumbaya routine and say, oh, you know, it's common understanding and reaching the other way and reaching across the aisle and all of that. But I will say that the media would do well to understand the Trump voter. The media would do well to understand, and I don't mean mythologize, because after the 2016 election, the media did a, a little bit of this, where they almost had this, like, it was almost this zoo animal approach to identifying the Trump voter. It was, oh, look at the Trump voter in their natural habitat. And you'd see reporters going to small town American uh, communities and, and seeing what people thought. But it's about actually trying to understand. Because the media's mindset the media's mindset is that Trump is terrible, Trump is racist, Trump is this, and therefore anyone who votes for him has to be those things or has to be okay with them. And there was a point I, I actually came up with the other day that I wanted to share on this, in that discussing tone and presidential tone and presidential rhetoric and the philosophical nature of democracy and discourse, that is, to use the left's language, a very privileged discussion. 
if you are someone in Midwest America whose job has been lost to outsourcing, if you're someone whose child has been killed by an illegal immigrant, if you're someone living in the middle of the United States, all of those red states that are not getting a lot of attention, not getting a lot of investment, not seeing a boom, if you're one of those people... Your concerns are not the philosophical nature of discourse and democracy, tone, rhetoric. Your concerns are much greater than the things on which the media tends to obsess. And the media has not done a very good job at all. In fact, I would say they've especially rejected the idea of governing themselves by looking at Trump's actual accomplishments or failures. But just by looking at his legislative record, not a lot of attention on Middle East peace. And again, not that, you know, a Midwestern voter is necessarily governed by their thoughts on Middle East peace, but that's a a pretty significant thing. When you've got Israel, Bahrain, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, I think Israel, Kuwait as well is one that was uh, on the table, and, and now Kosovo and Serbia. When you've got all these countries that are coming to the table together, and Trump is the guy at the table bringing them there, that's pretty darn important. But to go back to the other point that I was making is that the people who live in these forgotten communities, what uh, some Democrats would term flyover country, they don't have the privilege of having these grand 30,000 foot high discussions that are so detached from the reality of their life and of their existence. And the media does. And the pundits do. The pundits in their expensive suits who drive the expensive cars, who go to the TV stations in big cities like New York or Washington, D.C. or Atlanta, and then they sit around in their studio talking to other people exactly like them about all the reasons that, oh, Trump is terrible and Trump is reprehensible, not at all understanding that the person who's voting for him is just trying to get by. And that is so key. And I know just by saying this, there are going to be a lot of Canadian conservatives, because I see it on Twitter, that are saying, oh, you know, how can you go, how can you support Trump, and and how can you do this? Let me tell you, I was very skeptical when Trump first came onto the scene, because I didn't think he was a real conservative. And I still don't think he's a real conservative. I, I think that he has kind of redrawn the lines and occupied a space in the political spectrum that hasn't really existed in North American politics all that frequently. But when you look at what he's up against, which is a Democrat party that is not led by Joe Biden. I mean, this is the big issue is that Joe Biden may be the candidate right now, but it's not going to be long before it is Kamala Harris. And then it's not going to be long after that before it's AOC. That's the future of the Democrats. That is the future of the Democrat Party of the United States of America. So Trump is up against people that are very much radical even compared to Joe Biden, which is why you can't just look at Trump versus Biden as the dichotomy. But more importantly, I looked at Trump as someone who was prepared to upend the system, which is in a lot of ways, I mean, very much in alignment with what Bernie Sanders supporters wanted, but I don't want the system to be upended to become more socialist. I wanted the system to be upended to go in the other direction. So when Trump won, I had a a cautious hopefulness, we could say, And it's interesting because the media actually pushed me more to defending Trump than I ever would have reached uh, on my own. 
And I think the media has had that effect, that galvanizing effect against itself for Trump. When you look at the dynamic, I mean, the most famous example was when uh, CNN's Chiron was uh, suggesting that, you know, everyone else got one scoop of ice cream at a White House dinner and Trump got two scoops of ice cream. I mean, stories like that only only really serve to make the media look more and more ridiculous. And when they've done this, every time there's an ordinary person watching that's like, well, hang on, I'm just trying to get by. And even if Trump is gone, until people start to understand that person, or at the least try to understand that person, we're never going to bridge this great divide in American culture, which is also a, a big divide that we see emerging in Canadian culture as well. More of The Andrew Lawton Show up next here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. So next week is Remembrance Day, and I know it's going to be a lot different this year. I I know a lot of the mass gatherings are are not taking place. There's a a fellow in my neighborhood who's kind of like the self-styled neighborhood watch commander who uh, told us all, he did like a little door-to-door tour last week, that we're all to uh, stand out on our front porches at 11 a.m. on Remembrance Day and and have a moment of silence together. So I, I don't know if this is like a real thing or if this is just something the guy said so i might like just peek out my window at uh, 10 59 and let's see if anyone else is doing it and if they are i'll i'll join them i don't just want to be like standing out on the porch alone though so i could do the moment of silence uh, on my own but here's uh, one point that i i will stress about this is that even if we are not having the conventional ceremonies and commemorations of remembrance day uh, we better darn well remember and one of the greatest reminders of remembrance day is right here the poppy that people wear. And if you're watching from outside Canada, uh, this is something that's very central to Canada. If you're watching in Britain, the poppy looks a little different, but you understand the tradition very well. I actually have a British poppy somewhere, but I think it's still packed up from uh, from when I moved a few months ago. But here's the, the thing. When Don Cherry made his big uh, rant last year, the tremendous uh, you people rant that got him fired, so many people, so many people came forward and were like, okay, hang on. It's a poppy. We should all wear poppies. These are unifying things. Well, not quite. Take a look at Whole Foods, which is a large food retailer owned by Amazon. Whole Foods has banned employees from wearing poppies at its Canadian stores. Now, this is, a again, a U.S.-based company. They've said their uniform policy does not allow poppies. They won't say why. An employee who told CBC about this said, I was told that if they allowed this one particular case, then it would open up the door so that they would have to allow or consider allowing other causes. CBC News is not naming the employee who says they were in shock, appalled, and couldn't believe it. She said she's been able to wear one, but this year was a bit different. The Whole Foods uniform is an apron, coat, or vest a hat, and a name badge, and that's it. And a poppy doesn't comply with the policy, the company said. Now, here's the thing. This is another story where I suspect that there may be a reversal by the time it comes out, so bear with me. We'll have to get this episode out quickly. And I hope there is a reversal. I mean, I actually hope this is wrong and outdated by the time the show comes out. I I get the whole we don't want to allow political slogans. I get that, okay, we don't want to have to allow uh, this uh, politically identifying thing. But the problem is is that when you have a 
policy so rigid and firm, you lose sight of the nuance of things that are not controversial. And, and a red poppy is one of those things that is not and should not be controversial. And if it is, there's a big problem with the person who is making the claim that it is, not a problem with the poppy itself. And when I talk about how unifying poppies are, it's important to note here that the Whole Foods ban on them has actually brought together the Conservatives and the NDP. Aaron O'Toole was, I, I think, the first to put out a statement condemning Whole Foods ban. He had first put out a tweet and then a, a more formal condemnation in which he said, the past sacrifice of Canadians provides the freedom for a big American grocery chain to be stupid today. Really shooting from the hip. It is shameful and frankly un-Canadian that Whole Foods is banning their employees from showing respect for our veterans, to those of us who have proudly served our country, to those still serving, to the, to the fallen who have paid the ultimate sacrifice, this is not a cause. O'Toole continued, let's tell Whole Foods to stop trying to be woke foods. The poppy is a sign of respect. And he says he'll proudly wear his poppy and shop for groceries elsewhere. Well, I mean, who could afford to shop at Whole Foods? That's the, the bigger problem. I mean, by the time you've spent like $9 on an avocado, you actually don't have any money left to put in in the poppy bin. So that's one thing to keep in mind here. And Doug Ford, the Ontario Premier, didn't just condemn it, but actually promised legislation. He had said this morning, we will introduce legislation that prohibits any employer from banning their staff from wearing a poppy during Remembrance Week. Hashtag lest we forget. Now, I find that to be a bit ridiculous. I've always been of the mindset that businesses can set out their policies for themselves. If Whole Foods has a dress code and a uniform policy that prohibits poppies, that's uh, Whole Foods prerogative. We cannot shop there, as Aaron O'Toole's statement indicates. So this idea of like promising legislation, I, I find just ridiculous. Uh, there are so many ways to do this that don't involve the government getting involved. Individual politicians saying, I'm always going to wear a poppy. That's the best way to do it. Uh, Jagmeet Singh has also come out, though. He slammed Whole Foods for their poppy ban, but also for BLM censorship. Remember how I said earlier that the it's a slippery slope? The poppy ban then becomes the ban on on any other political slogans. He said, it's wrong to ban the poppy. Canadians shouldn't lose the right to honor the sacrifices of veterans when they go to work. And Jagmeet Singh had also linked it to a staff who weren't able to express their support for BLM as part of the uniform. So thus proving my point on this. But again, this is a unifying thing. This does not need to be politicized, but now it is just because one company didn't realize how important this issue and this campaign is to Canadians who have military connections and Canadians who don't. I am rising today and I must say I am absolutely disheartened and angry that I must do so. I am sure if you seek it, you will find unanimous consent for the following motion, that this house condemn Whole Foods and its owner, Jeff Bezos, for banning its employees from wearing poppies on their uniform and demand that the policy be reversed immediately. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, lest we forget. The House has heard the terms of the motion. All those opposed to the motion being adopted, please say nay. Again, hearing none, it is adopted. Carried. So, if you are not wearing a poppy, that's fine. That's your choice. Whole Foods has a right as a company to have this policy. Employees have the right to work somewhere else. Individuals shopping at the store can clearly wear a poppy. The problem with something like this is that it kind of politicizes something inherently that wasn't and shouldn't be political. 
Because now when employees go into Whole Foods, they're going to have uh, their issues that they're going to raise with employees. Employees are going to have to, and I've worked in retail. I know this dynamic very well. Employees tend to have to shoulder the decisions of their parent company, especially when people learn about it in the news. And, you know, this year, I think it's especially important that people wear poppies because we aren't going to have the November 11th ceremony. So that idea of, of walking around and just seeing it, it's not just symbolic, though. This is also the hugest fundraiser for the Legion, which, again, against tremendous odds, we know Legions are struggling. Legions are still there doing work to support veterans and to support veteran communities. And in cities across Canada, you've got uh, varying degrees of it. And, you know, look, th this is something that is challenging because especially this year, a lot of Legions, which need bar revenue and uh, restaurant revenue, they're not exactly able to take that this year. They've had to close their doors like so many other organizations. So just, I mean, <laughs> I hate to do the, the Don Cherry thing, but you people need to get off your high horses and put on a darn poppy. And this is true of Whole Foods. And again, I under, I'm not saying force your employees to wear them. I'm just saying allow them to and understand that your rigid embrace of this policy because you're worried about the slippery slope of, oh, if we allow a poppy today, then, you know, then we're going to have to allow Black Lives Matter and then we're going to have to allow defund the police. I mean, no, it's not that a poppy is not a slippery slope to anything apart from remembering the sacrifice of veterans. And the comparison that I always draw, even with people who don't like the poppy, is that our freedom comes in no small part due to the veterans who fought and died for our right to make those choices, to make those decisions. The fact that we can say, ah, oh, you know, I don't like the poppy, that's in and of itself a right that the poppy signifies the acquisition of. And of course, as predicted, Whole Foods has in fact walked this back after the initial recording of this segment. Here's a statement sent out by Whole Foods. Our new unified dress code policy is intended to create consistency and ensure operational safety across all of our stores. Our intention was never to single out the poppy or to suggest a lack of support for Remembrance Day and the heroes who have bravely served their country. We appreciate the thoughtful feedback we have received from our customers. Given the learnings of today, we are welcoming team members to wear the poppy pin in honor of Remembrance Day. As was previously planned, we will also be observing a moment of silence on November 11th, as well as making a monetary donation to the Legion Poppy Fund. So never let anyone say that swift outrage unanimously from politicians across party stripes cannot force a Whole Foods retailer into submission. Back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. So not that I'm looking for a new job. I'm actually quite happy with what I'm doing. But I would be, I would be remiss to not point out this job posting in Canada's National Post. Looking for a comment editor as Matt Gurney, who uh, many of you may know, has announced he is not going to stay on. He was there on a contract and he's moving on to better things. But they're now looking for a comment editor to run the comment section. And here's the criteria laid out, or the criterion rather, laid out. The successful candidate will have a passion for comment 
commentary that dares to refute flawed conventional thinking with trenchancy, irreverence, and wit. Well, this is Canada's most irreverent show, and I like to think I'm a bit of a witty uh, person. I don't know about how trenchant I am, but we'll see. The successful candidate will also be prepared to withstand demands to submit to politically correct orthodoxy by the woke Twitter mobs while firmly resisting the excesses of fringe politics on any side of the spectrum. And then excellent writing and editing skills, news judgment, familiarity with digital news, blah, 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 blah. But I like this part. Withstand the demands to submit to politically correct orthodoxy. That should actually be a job posting in pretty much every career imaginable. I think any company, even if it's outside of media, needs to contain that because uh, the world is only going to uh, get away from the woke Twitter mobs canceling everyone when people have an express mandate to push back against it and withstand that pressure. So uh, even if it is a little bit more playful and tongue-in-cheek, trenchancy, irreverent wit and all that stuff, I think it's tremendously important And also, as someone who wants media that is not going to cow before the Twitter mobs, I'm very grateful to see the National Post go down this road of of digging its heels in and saying, this is who we are. And this is something that came up a couple of weeks ago where they issued kind of a a renewed mandate of sorts. They said Barbara Kay was going to be coming back. And this comes just a, a few months after there was really that internal coup about the Rex Murphy column. And Candace Malcolm spoke with, with Rex at great length. So if you want to hear what he thinks about any number of things, do check out that interview. But uh, what happened was the National Post really had this, I think, spiritual reawakening of sorts, where uh, they were trying to kind of win both sides of being of appeal to conservatives and also uh, socially woke. And I think they realized that's not who they are. So it's good to see them go back to this. And and whoever gets that position, I, I hope you will live up to that requirement of withstanding the Twitter mob. Let's talk about free speech on the show for a moment and broadly, because last week we spoke about this with France and Justin Trudeau really taking this equivocal position on what's happening in France and not really standing up for uh, unadulterated, really broad free speech and the absolutist mentality behind free speech that is essential to free speech. Well, it's not really gotten much better. And let me just say by way of contrast here, the uh, Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, had said, blasphemy in garb of freedom of expression is intolerable. And when he read that, it was actually quite sad to think that was kind of indistinguishable from Justin Trudeau's position, which is that, yeah, we support freedom of speech, but, you know, you have to take into consideration people that you share the planet with. That was the the one sort of crux of the line. And he used that old trope of shouting fire in a crowded theater, which I actually took aim at, but I was also glad to see Colby Kosh and the National Post uh, take aim at that trope as well by saying that it's just like it's overused and it doesn't actually really mean what the people that say it think it means. So Justin Trudeau needs to understand that free speech is not about these qualifiers and limitations. And then we see on a micro level how this approach to free speech in freedom of expression and freedom of assembly is kind of unfolding. So uh, as you may know, I live in London, Ontario, which is in southwestern Ontario. About uh, 25 minutes from here, there's a, a town called Aylmer, which has become a bit of a hotbed for the culture war about masks and the mask orders and all of that stuff in the last couple of weeks. And and Elmer is having on Saturday, tomorrow, a big demonstration where people are going to have a freedom march. They're going to protest against mask orders and lockdown restrictions and stand up for their personal freedoms. 
I think people have a right to do that. Especially after thousands of people gathered for Black Lives Matter protests, we've all determined that protests are apparently a completely legitimate and justifiable activity throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, preemptively, the mayor of Elmer, which I imagine is not a hugely powerful role, but the mayor of Elmer declared a state of emergency by talking about the things that could happen the things that could happen if this event were to proceed. Now, to be clear, she didn't try to censor the event, but she said that there was the potential for unrest and the potential for harm. So they were preemptively in Elmer declaring a state of emergency for something that hasn't even happened yet, which reminds me of Minority Report, where the police go after criminals for crimes that have not yet taken place. But then it went beyond that because the uh, town actually sent a letter to Ontario's government, to the Ontario Solicitor General, asking for them to make a change to the mask mandate, to the order to wear masks everywhere, basically, indoors, by saying that if someone is exempt, if they have a, a medical exemption, a reason they can't wear a mask, they should have to provide proof. Right now, there's an understanding that if you are exempt from wearing a mask, maybe you're asthmatic or have some other issue, you are able to go in and not follow it because you have a medical exemption. You don't need to prove that because proving it would mean that you have to disclose to some grocery store clerk you have a particular medical condition, which is a violation of your human rights. But now they're saying, no, 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 the mask order is not enforceable if anyone can just say they have an exemption and we don't have recourse to uh, investigate. So they want the right to start questioning people who are asthmatic or questioning people who have uh, issues that prevent them from putting on a mask without assistance. They want to be able to start questioning them and issuing fines. So Elmer is digging its heels in when you can actually go around and I, I don't go out all that much lately, but you can go around and the number of people that I see not wearing masks is virtually non-existent. In fact, I would say, I, you know, genuinely speaking, I cannot remember the last time I was in a grocery store and saw someone not wearing a mask. So the idea that people are flouting this order in large enough numbers that they need this power to start digging into people's medical uh, records is actually quite insane. And, and by medical records, I mean, it would mean that someone basically had to carry around a doctor's note or that there had to be some sort of exemption card apart from, hey, I'm a free citizen, so shut your pie hole. Uh, that, that is really what they seem to be headed for here. Now, this was called ridiculous, I think justifiably so, by Lisa Bildy, who's a lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and actually is, is my lawyer. Uh, she's representing True North and I in our case against the Leaders Debates Commission. But she said to one of our colleagues at True North that this is intrusive and frankly ridiculous. She said, for one thing, the demonstration is entirely outdoors where masks aren't even required. And there's very little evidence that masks do anything at all beyond providing psychological comfort or discomfort, depending on the wearer. And it is interesting that now the uh, federal government is saying, oh, you should actually have a three-layered mask. So they went from don't wear masks to wear one if you want to you have to wear one to now uh, it's not doing anything. You need to make sure it has three layers and not two layers. Uh, so at a certain point, we are going to get to hazmat suits. We just haven't gotten there yet which is why people like those in Elmer behind the Freedom March are standing up and saying, you know what, I'm not exactly com comfortable with this approach. And that's why they want to protest. And if you are very comfortable with masks, you love masks, you're uncomfortable with the Freedom Marchers, then your remedy is very simple. Don't go. 
wear a mask, protect yourself. Don't go around these people that you don't think are following the rules or uh, you will. I mean, clearly you, you think aren't. Don't go around them. If you're in a store and you see someone who has a medical mask exemption, who's not wearing a mask, make sure you're staying a good six feet or even eight feet, even eight feet, just to be careful away from them. This is the whole point is that there's trying, there's, they're trying to create this problem that just doesn't exist. But in doing so, they only want to, uh, they only seem to embolden the people that are not happy with it because it kind of proves their point, which is that governments keep wanting to push that line and expand their power further and further. And then here we are. In any case, that event is coming up tomorrow in Aylmer. Don't know how many people are going to be there, but certainly I think that the conduct by the town of Aylmer will probably boost attendance more than anything the organizers could have done on their own. We've got to wrap things up. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show today. Hope you have a great weekend. We will talk to you on Monday. Thank you. God bless and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.